If you are listening to this episode, then it means that we are dead. Or sick, or out of town, or something like that. It just means that we didn't do an episode this week, so we're giving you a special episode. A little nugget of cultural discussion to take away from the relentless misery of our weekly political episodes. Yeah. Uh, so it's This should tide you over. Mm. We're hoping to show a softer side of ourselves, a yeah. more playful side of ourselves. Uh, Discuss things that we love, not just things that we take umbrage at. Yeah, things that get in the way of the things that we love. So, welcome, friends, to a special episode of Weakness for Bleakness. A modest house, a picket fence, a couple kids, some common sense, a job to pay your mortgage or your rent. And all these goals are understood, but misery is a public good, so come and feed your sorrows till you're spent. Well, just to come, the captain said, the icebergs are the dead ahead, the men will keep the engines fed, I have a deal with God. We're at the end of history, there ain't a hope for you or me, when workers philanthropically believe in the economy. But what a feast for tired eyes, the poison earth, the boiling skies, and everyone their own depths rise, remember when the world was wise, we know, no, no. Uh, all right, Darcy. This feels strange. Strangely it does feel strange, free and uh, we don't have to navigate headlines cheerful. that we've yeah. half digested. I've, I'm of course no more prepared than for a regular episode. So I should hope not, Kieran. I should certainly hope about you're it. not going to taint this production with some sort of professionalism. <laughs> the risk is minimal. <laughs> uh, so we're doing two topics, right? This. Here you go. This episode is going to be the same length <laughs> than the other episodes. That was a blank space where I'll edit in either shorter, longer, or the same length. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we're just going to hit up a couple of topics. I'm going to start us off with uh, video games. Storytelling in video games. Because this is an area of research in my grown-up job. Uh, which actually doesn't make a lick of sense that my fucking job is analyzing games. Yeah, well, it's not, but it's bringing me into into this sphere briefly. So, uh, where to start on this? Well, yes, I was going to quick pressy on the evolution of the video game as a a media Mm. item, right? Yeah. From games that were basically based on pinball machines. Yep. In the 1980s, where you just had a simple, you know, two buttons, mm-hmm. movie stick, mm-hmm. shoot aliens or eat apples kind of yep. games, where it wasn't really a plot, it was just about racking up scores, Yes, through to what we have now, which mm-hmm. are almost kind of interactive cinema experiences. Yes, giant multimedia uh, productions with quite a lot of heft behind them. And throughout that entire time, the debate over whether video games are art has been going on. Yeah. Uh, Famously, Roger Ebert threw a bit of a spanner in that works when he's like, they're not art and they'll never be art. And everybody listened to him for some reason. Uh, Look, the the vast majority of games, firstly, here's the thing. They're art because they're made and they affect people. The term art is- Way too protected. Duchamp settled this with his upside-down toilet bullshit that he did. Yeah. The question now is just what is good art and what is bad art. Most video games are bad art. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) Pointless, entertaining, 
uh, pointless pieces of entertainment with a body of writers who, for some reason, resolutely refuse to learn anything from any other body of writing. Yeah, they don't really which is do interesting. they. It's like politicians don't read history. Mm. Games writers don't read literature. Yeah, just don't read. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there's a couple of there's a couple of things that have changed. So what I'm researching is storytelling in from software games. So Dark Souls, Bloodborne, Dark Souls Two, uh, Bloodborne, Dark Souls Three. Uh, Bloodborne, and nominally <laughs> Demon Souls, although really just Dark Souls one. Yeah, Bloodborne. Okay. Bloodborne is essentially nineteenth uh, century Dark Souls with yeah. blood instead of souls. Yeah, well, it's it's like uh, gothic cosmic horror rather than just medieval dark fantasy. There you go. But like, what's interesting here about these games is right i don't want to fucking gild the lily too much they're not telling super super profound stories i don't think although you know they may be more profound than people give them credit for they're still dumb fantasy stories where it's you know a hero and a villain yeah. and all of that shit but there's this really interesting thing the, the reason that it's interesting is because you can't do this sort of storytelling in literature or in film this uh suggestive detail rather than exhaustive detail to fill out the edges of your world. So in Dark Souls, you're given fuck all information. You're the chosen undead and you have to kill the lords of the flame, whatever the fuck they're called. And to maybe or maybe not save the universe. Yeah. And detail is deliberately opaque and it's deliberately kept from you. So you're given this thread of storyline to follow but all around the edges of the game world are these amazing little bits of detail which give you just enough to fill some of it in without explaining it. Right, but you have to find these. You have to yeah. find them, you have to read item descriptions. So like, you could conceivably play through the whole game mm. without garnering any narrative insight into what's going on. Yes, as many people do, because if you, uh, as part of your research, are m- unfortunate enough to have to Google what Dark Souls means to get a read on what people think it means you'll get <clears throat> Dark Souls has a shitty fan base it has a really terrible fan base like a lot of good things yeah it's the Rick and Morty of the video game not like us of course no 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 we don't have a fan base at all but um, <laughs> you'll get a lot of people who are like it's about being good at gaming or it's about how gaming makes you a better person than other people or it's about persistence and then occasionally Certainly, it's somewhat about persistence yeah, yeah, well, of course, but that's n- not the be-all and end-all of it. Um, you'll get a couple of people pointing out the reasonably solid depression allegory that runs through the game, which is one facet of it. But generally, uh, yeah, there's a lot a lot crazier shit going on there, and it functions exclusively, I think, because of this interesting storytelling mechanic. Right. So they're sort of pushing show-don't-tell to about as extreme a point mm. as you can. Yeah, which comes out of it so the director the creative director of these games uh hidetaka miyazaki if you say so kieran yeah i think it's hidetaka uh <clears throat> hidetaka hidetaki one of them he's got some crazy moon language name anyway uh he <laughs> as a boy used to love reading english language books but he only had a very tiny vocabulary right. so he would be able to pick up maybe 15 or 20 words on a page and he would string them together to create a story in okay. his head. So he was using these books as a sort of um, 
skeleton for his own tail. Yeah, and uh, that's really important as a reader to be able to do because, like, ideas around reader response and death of the author and shit are, like, still hard for to get people to believe in. Yeah. But this is, like, an accelerated version of that. He learned that stories can shift with the reader depending on when they read them and that for this effect to be maximised, what you can do is just salt these tiny, tiny little details. And so you end up with this surprisingly compelling story where it's like, instead of being the chosen undead that fucking, you know, saves the world, you're actually just coincidentally one of these thousands of pawns that kind of gets absorbed into this existing political struggle on either side, but you never see the political struggle taking place. You only see the fringes where you're sort of being subverted by these people, which is really interesting, I think. Mm. Sounds interesting. Yes. And I think it breathes a lot of life into it, right? If you, like, allows it to sustain as an object of interest for people. So if you look at Formless Oedon, who is one of the old gods in Bloodborne, right? He's like, he, she, I'm not even sure, is like the top kind of... The big bad? The I mean, he's not the big bad in the game, but he's like the, the head of the old ones or whatever. Or so okay. the oldest or the... Odin biggest or whatever maybe who knows because you never get that much information ah, okay. about him he's crucially important to the story uh but the big beats of the story have all happened like centuries before the fucking events of the game and nobody is really aware enough to clue you in but a lot of the game revolves around uh like a chapel that's built to him and you know, it's fairly early on, gets into, like, the tomb of Odin and stuff. So he's this incredibly powerful figure, but he's literally and figuratively formless in the game. You don't get a lot of information about him. He might be the one that's impregnating women every time the moon gets red or whatever, or he might not be, or he might not even exist anymore. He might be a former person or whatever. Goodness me. That's what's interesting about this to me. So what the, these differentiates it. games are... Almost a sort of not story, yeah, in a way. Very You're carefully. given just enough information mm-hmm. that the writers want to sort of share with you. Yeah. To allow you to construct essentially your own narrative around what's happening. Yeah, but it's not as fuzzy as that No, because there's, there's still there's, some direction, isn't there? Yeah, it's very solid. Like, the, it's, it's not... There's ambiguity, but there's never uncertainty if that... No, that's that's not right because those are essentially synonyms. Uh, there's <laughs> there's ambiguity about what's happening, but it's not treated like something is still happening. Something though. is you has still you know, in, in Bloodborne. You still have to hunt down these uh, accursed monsters that are tormenting this city. Yeah, yeah, and eventually the uncover the conjunction style thing with the old ones and kill Rom the vacuous spider. Like there's a set right. of beats that always happens, but why you're doing that is still uncertain there's a couple of competing theories over whether at the end all of it was a dream or whether all of the horror takes place over one exceptionally long night or like is this cycle doomed to repeat itself etc 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 which is fucking i don't know it's interesting to me that a story can have so much debate over what's still happening without then feeling like cheap and i think the only way that you can do it is through games because when films are this ambiguous 
there's always like a qualified respect for it. Yeah. Like a Terrence Malick movie or whatever. They're beautiful, but a lot of people come out of it being a bit like, well... I wouldn't have paid money for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm aware it was a unique experience. I don't know if I'm okay with that. Yeah. And even if you like it, I feel like it's hard not to get bored. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like I, I, the first to put my hand up and say mm. I kind of struggle with a lot of David Lynch's yeah. work. Well, yeah. Maybe I'm... I don't... I think David Lynch may be actually the example of where this shit works in screen but i'll i'll pay the point i love david lynch but i'd like david lynch is mm. to struggle i'm often not in the mood yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah um because because this is again a difference as well not just the fact that games well in fact no it's fundamental it's not just it's not another difference it's a difference between an active medium and a passive mm. medium right yeah. the reason i struggle with david lynch sometimes is that I just want to receive information and be entertained yeah, and not have to do any work. Mm. Whereas a video game, you never, ever boot up a video game thinking, I hope I don't have to play much video game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also these ones specifically do this interesting training thing where they're fucking difficult games, right? That's what they're most notorious for is that they're fucking hard. Yeah. Bloodborne's tutorial is literally you walk down some stairs and get killed by a werewolf. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the entire first section of that game is so your punishingly difficult that idiot people just character has decided to become a fucking demon hunter and not brought any weaponry with him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you have to do like this slightly off-piste kung fu. Mm. Yeah, and then die. Has anyone killed the wolf? I killed the wolf with my fists. With first fist, time you did, I played it. Yeah. You- you were all, like, Dark Souls trained by this point. I though, was Dark Souls you? trained, but I will go on record and say that it was a complete fucking coincidence. <laughs> it's not because I was good. It was because I got a couple of good shots in there. I managed to punch the mm. um, bookcase and then get my head torn off. Yeah. See, I've played that section two other times and never come fucking close to killing the thing those other times. But the first time, I got lucky. Sometimes you get lucky. Yeah, it's true. A, I a, mean, I don't, but... Sometimes yeah. people do. Yeah. Um, That's yeah. interesting. So I, they're difficult. So they kind of train the player to be active with yeah. it as well. So and you're taught that you, you are an active part of forming the story. Mm. Because each story is going to be subtly different for each yeah. player, depending on their own prejudices, hopes, fears, all these sorts of things. Yeah. I think the, the closest thing that I can think of to this in literature sounds like the... Um, Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, The Unbeliever, by oh, Stephen J. Donaldson, yeah. which takes place in a land which is just called The Land, yeah, which is a magical land, but it also takes place in mid-20th mid century America, mm. um, at the, the, first at the book, start which, and end of the novels. The first book, which is the only one that I've read, uh, I mainly remember for being quite transparently uh, inspired by Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah, hugely. But- um, subverts bits and pieces. Like it's, mm. it's it's a clever book. I'm not a massive fan of the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant. Partly because he, Stephen J. Donaldson deliberately wrote them to be difficult to read. Right. You'll remember the purple prose that yeah. takes place in the land, but only in the land. Right. And he did that deliberately because he wanted to really reinforce the fact that Thomas Covenant is not from there. Yeah. He does, he's not comfortable there. He's a man from. 
you know the I think the sixties or seventies America. Mm. Yeah, and those few passages that take place in America are written very simply and very concretely mm. and make sense. And as soon as we hit the land, it's all dreamlike and surreal, not yeah. just in description but in the language. Yeah, and there's a huge amount of that which is suggested and not stated and. You know, I think you pretty much have to finish the first series of books before you accept that the land is actually a real place. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's as close as you can get in literature, I think, and that's still yeah. that's still very much a, a passive reader and a very active writer. Yeah, cramming yeah. Cramming information into you. I yeah, I don't want to oversell this distinction too much and say that like oh it's fucking mind-blowing that this thing is being done in this different way because i think overall art is better at this point in time in other genres and like this isn't dissimilar to that it's not dissimilar to what david lynch is trying to do it's not dissimilar to something like uh annihilation and the book that that was based on that that kind of thrives on ambiguity and ambiguity itself is obviously a very old tool. Yeah, certainly. But there is this interesting thing about the way that the player is involved and the way that that leads to, like, a multitude of interpretations, none of which contradicts the other. Yeah. No, I, 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 think, it's, uh, I think it's really interesting. Mm. Because, you know, video games are... What was it? The choose-your-own-adventure books from the 80s, right? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. That wasn't... choose. Those were just, like, basically several different books in one book quite mm. arbitrarily arranged as to what happened yeah um whereas computer games allow you to control somewhat mm. the actions of the protagonist which no other medium will ever let you do yeah well here here's the here's where i guess that storytelling thing which is i guess what i've mostly been focused on gets reinforced by the nature of the game is that and again it'll take fucking dark i part of the problem here is that if anybody who is part of those terrible fandoms ever listened to this they would get hung up on being like ah actually they said that formless Ardon was this and not that uh he claims to be talking about something that he knows about but clearly doesn't know about it <laughs> uh i played bloodborne a while ago guys so bear with me but uh let's in in dark souls right the mechanics on like there's an in, intense level of attention to detail in in the games from like architecture to level design and stuff like that it's it's a very cohesive fucking whole and the storytelling methodology is kind of reinforced in every other way like the multiplayer system um is unique in that it's like sort of asymmetrical and you know you leave messages for other people and they leave messages for you and then in specific points in time you can bridge game worlds and get summoned or summon at helpful phantoms invading phantoms that sort of shit but the way that that is tied in with a short little monologue from uh Solaire Knight Solaire who is praise the sun guy uh, about how the time and space of this world is unstable and simultaneously manages to, like, make a point about the multi-threaded nature of the narrative and a meta point about game stuff and then introduce, like, an interesting mechanic in a way that seamlessly sort of reinforces the narrative is really impressive. I'll buy that. Yeah, <laughs> and then there's other shit like attention to detail with architecture and other mechanics and stuff. But that's oh, just one, yeah. e one the, example. Um, the design of the world as itself 
beautifully narrative. You know, mm. the, 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 especially the way that the uh, level designers use... <clears throat> I'm trying to... Um, leveling, not like the height physically verticality thank you i'm patting kieran on the knee there Mm. verticality was the uh, ungainly word i was struggling to summon there yeah is incredibly powerful and potent yeah yeah that um when you so in the beginning of dark souls Mm. you have two bells to ring yeah and it is an absolute nightmare getting to the first bell but you do and you manage to ring it and you you're treated to this brief moment where you get to sort of stand on top of a mountain yeah. and breathe some fresh air and look around at this really quite beautiful landscape yeah. and feel like you've achieved something. And then you realise that you now have to crawl through the bowels of hell yeah, to get to the second bell. The next place that you have to go to is Which is in the a fucking poisonous swamp <laughs> through yeah. Blight Town, which had some accidental challenges as mm. well as actual challenges. Yeah, Blight Town is a piece of shit. It's not without its flaws, that game. <laughs> Although remastered Dark Souls Blight Town now runs fine. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Did they fix the enemy balance or anything there no. to make it fun? No? Good. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is They've interesting. They've also randomly um, touched up some textures and not others. So you have mm. realistic rock next to uh, 8-bit moss, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good. Yeah. No, that is interesting. Um because the first bell is in the bell tower of a church, so you're on the roof of a church when you ring the first one, and then the second one is right on that precipice where you can see the molten lava of the yeah. hell level that you end up going to, the demon ruins or whatever. It's extraordinarily well done. Mm. It's very cohesive. Um, so, you, yeah, you do get to experience these genuine moments of physical relief mm. and then dread. Yeah, well, that's that's Which a lot of games that... d- don't really... Well, I don't find a lot of games offer very well. No, basically never. I think the two times that I've experienced uh, that sort of immersion into the atmosphere of a world was once when I was like fucking 10 or something and I was playing Morrowind and it was raining uh, as I was going through the wilderness towards Belmora right at the start and it was just like a profoundly cool experience for little old me that hadn't... Yeah. Uh, come into other stuff and another time I was stoned and playing Skyrim and I was in the wilderness <laughs> and the uh, the streets of Whiterun came on the soundtrack and I was just like this is beautiful this is beautiful <laughs> those are cool that mine was I think my first and only time apart from I was I was, I was a 10 again mm. but I was in um, uh, was it like just the dark tunnel or whatever in pokemon red <laughs> and i had yeah. i think my, my my party had about three hp left mm. and i was just trying to run from zubats it was yes. horrible <laughs> yeah the relief when i uh when i got out into the sunlight near near whatever new city it was was yeah fucking extraordinary <laughs> yeah games are good for those moments they involve you yeah and yeah dark souls is like fucking and Bloodborne as well. You really buy into how desolate and lonely and oh, yeah. fucked those worlds are. It's exquisitely done. So when it gets to the point where it's talking about what I think it's talking about as a reader, and I can only speak in terms of interpretations, which is like about politics and philosophy. So I can't prove that Miyazaki has read the philosophy that I've read, but... He's got an obsession with, like, Cinder and Ash and Trace, which is all Derrida. He's got an obsession with, like, genetics and the torsions of crossing genetic thresholds and stuff like that, which is all Deleuze. 
He talks about uh, repetition and cycle, which is very, like, Nordic myth and Nietzsche. Mm. So, like, he's at least thinking in the same kind of area as these people, which is interesting to me. And that's all about sort of, like, the shit that we talk about on the regular podcast, politics and the the vast movements of civilization that happen without our being able to contribute any one of us and the kind of hopelessness of that and the struggle to find sort of hope and meaning and and, and impetus. And because, that. again, the fact that you're actively struggling towards this yeah. as some... But not just a beautifully crafted game, but a nightmarishly difficult mm. at times game. You know, I don't think I've ever played a game where the protagonist is so godforsaken as a yeah. From Software game. Yeah. Just the absolute lack of ability that you have mm. to influence the world around you. Yeah. Without going through enormous <laughs> levels of stress and struggle to mm. achieve tiny things like opening a fucking gate. Yeah. You have to die 19 times before you manage to get to the fucking lever, and then you realise yeah. you've got to get back through the enemies that have somehow returned. And Yeah. Oh, it is um, never-ending. It is. And it has nice little thematic touches as well, right? So, like, for the first half or so of the game, you're fucking around with, uh, like, mostly demons and monsters and shit like that. The first truly, like, uh, fucking controller-throwingly difficult boss in the first Dark Souls is Ornstein and Smoke. Oh, And that... Which is in a Worse fiendishly... Than farmers. Yeah. Worse <laughs> than farmers. I'm calling it now. <laughs> Fucking farmers. Uh, yeah, so they're in, they're in an already very difficult part of the game, but, like, that is... They are the gatekeepers that you have to get past to talk to somebody in authority. Like, just to have that be the turn at which, like, demons and monsters are hard to fight. But, you know, what really fucking sucks is trying to get in the ear of somebody with even a skerrick of power. Yeah. And then you learn that that person who's in power is a fucking illusion. Yeah, fundamentally useless, yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool, I think. It was also the, the most hard-earned and hollow victory of any game as well, right? Yeah. Because you finally defeat the big bad. Mm. And there's this real ambiguous, like, I hope he was a bad guy. Yeah. and Because there's the quite t- a lot of the fluff points towards him being... Mm. kind of a, a good guy who's given up more than being a villain and you, you yeah. sort of have to kill him to get his juicy soul to reboot stuff yeah but he could equally be just a like having a rest you know <laughs> between massive heroic endeavors yeah well there's a lot going on with it's not clear and at the thing. end you have the choice whether to light the fire or not light the fire that's it yeah and it's and so it like the you've only been given just enough information to know that you have no idea which is the right choice, and, and it's probably meaningless. Have you made both choices? Yeah. Tell yes. us about... Well, I mean, just in the first one, you light the fire and you're, like, consumed by it or whatever. I don't know. This was ages ago. Yeah. This was when we still lived together that That's I was right. playing through it the first time. I forget exactly so what happens, that, but it's kind of like... Eh. It's like, oh, you bought this horror planet another few decades Yeah, well, you restart the age slowly of... Slowly dying. <laughs> you restart the age of fire, but um, that doesn't really mean anything no because right? just what's led the to the age of darkness is <clears throat> inevitable anyway yeah and if you don't light the fire <clears throat> then you start the age of darkness which is sometimes called the age of man because there's this whole correlation between the abyss and darkness and humanity and um yeah <laughs> i don't know the other big snakes with mustaches like it's kind of cool isn't it because it's mm. it's sort of um varying ages but in a descending ladder 
So this universe yeah. seems like it was awesome when it was first made. Yeah. The dragons were just, like, having a great time. <laughs> and gradually, as each mm. age passes, it yeah, just it gets seems- steadily more and more bleak and dull and... Yeah. Till eventually you have the Irish jack-o'-lantern as the... <laughs> no, I can't, sorry, I can't help it. Yeah, no, no Darcy, that's all right. Stop it. Well, the one time that you go, you see the old world, you go to Anno Orlando, right? Yeah. And it does a, an amazing little fucking bit of storytelling where way, way earlier in the game, in the opening cutscene, I think, you're told that the Silver Knights don't exist anymore and that, like, giants have been mostly extinct and shit like that. Then you get to Anno Orlando where there are Silver Knights and giants. Yeah. So, and it's like this beautiful place with fucking giant pristine architecture and these huge temples and uh and stuff and it that whole thing turns out to be an illusion yes and you know the silver knights go Uh, insane and murderous and possibly just like live action armor suits they may not even be yeah in them anymore the silver knights aren't real because they're there when you're in the illusion part of it but when you destroy the illusion they disappear ah right it's only the fucking dark moon blades or whatever oh. that are hanging around and the demony things i guess uh so it does the illusion's just as creepy as the um post illusion as well yeah it's profoundly strange even though it's beautiful it's so mm. empty that it just feels yeah depressing <laughs> yeah of course it does that massive big kind of cathedral thing just before Ornstein and Smo is like, yeah. with the two giants in it that are a fucking pain in the ass to fight every time yeah, it's a desolate place. So it's a triumph of atmosphere, maybe, as much as anything else. Mm. But it's cool. I'm all about these fucking games. I hadn't put this much thought into it, although, mm. you know, it I sh- clearly should... A lot more should have occurred to me, probably. I, think what my, I don't tend to play these games through a second time. Yeah. Because I'm so happy to be... As much as I love playing them, I'm so fucking happy to be done with them that I don't yeah. <laughs> feel the need to go back and kind of re-explore things. Mm. The um, second time was a lot better than the first, like, just in terms of mastery from an early level. Yeah. Well, and stuff like that. Nothing. certainly wouldn't have to spend a whole week figuring out how to not die as soon as you leave the room. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're interesting. I'm obviously putting too much thought into it because it's part of my research and because it's... <clears throat> related can put too to, much thought into yeah but i'm just uh, saying you don't you know, need to think i'm not well, experiencing it the right way conceivably but, you can you can put none in and still have fun as you mm. say a lot of the internet comments suggest people do yeah if you want to just view it as a as a difficult series of problems to solve yeah um it's interesting how that mirrors the kind of uh conservative mindset of utopia in the past though that yeah they're like a return to the good old days of hard games where we didn't have our hand held where everybody didn't just get a participation award just for playing the bloody game. Yeah, which I I don't know. I've played some retro games. They're not mm. that hard. No, and the ones that are hard are They're bullshit. mostly... Reason, the, the reason that most old games are hard mm. is because of the, like, data limitations that meant... Yeah. Like, in, you know, you only had so many lives, or yeah. if you failed a mission, you had to... Yeah, the whole program had fucking, to wipe its memories. Yeah. <laughs> Like, like San Andreas, where every time you mm. die, you got to fucking get out of hospital and drive halfway across <laughs> the map to speak to the guy that gives the mission. And yeah, 
And I don't, that's not like making the game more difficult. It just makes it more exasperating. Yeah. <laughs> or it's like like Ghouls and Ghosts, which is notoriously difficult. And the most difficult part about it is that you get to the end and it puts you back at the start and you have to beat the game twice to beat the game. Like yeah. that's But you don't. You can just say, no, I, I've refused yeah, to I play go- your... <laughs> I'll hear from somebody on the playground what that final cutscene is yeah. after the <laughs> end Fuck of the you, game. old man. I'm not going to be a part mm. of your system. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, so, but that's neither here nor there. It's just interesting that that reflects a particular sort of conservative mindset that's that's going around. Uh, that these people are like, yeah, it's yeah, like back in the good old days. Yeah, when I was a child and my motor skills weren't that good, so <laughs> yeah. it was really difficult to play these things that are all based on reflexes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But sorry, conservatives, it's my opinion that it's a profoundly postmodernist text. Yeah. That's as wanky as I'll let myself get this time. This is all I like reckon rough that's note-taking. a pretty fucking safe call though. Yeah. I I, I wouldn't know how else to describe them mm. as as far as critical theory is concerned. Yeah. I'm sure you could do some Jungian shit on it. You could Jordan B. Peterson it. Uh, uh. Dark Souls is an exploration of orders descent into chaos. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There you go. You've got a fucking Jungian raid. <laughs> or you've just got to figure out which is the shadow, uh, which is the animus. Okay, the so animus. shadow is feminine, which is chaotic. Fire is masculine and therefore ordered. Yeah, so... Uh, which means that fire is good. Although we're also not saying that chaos is bad. Yeah. It just needs to be controlled by order. Right. But that doesn't mean... That there's anything wrong with it just needs to be controlled and contained. Yeah. So that's interesting because Gwyn is the Lord of Fire. He represents order from which we're descending. The Bed of Chaos is the Witch of Isolith's feminine attempt to recreate the order, but plunging uh, the world into deeper uh, chaos. Uh, you can do it. You can do it. See, there's was- something about Gwendolyn, who's a man who was raised as a woman Whoa, and lives that's- in the dark world as opposed to the light. So. If you try to force order to become chaos, mm. then you get a boss that can turn invisible? Maybe. I don't know. I can't remember what... No, no, no. Uh, Priscilla turns invisible. Gwendolyn is in that endlessly expanding corridor where you've got to run after him. Oh, well, actually, that kind away. of makes sense as an order forced into chaos reading. Yeah, kind of. But also, like, it's just kind of dope, and he's kind of the only one holding things together a little bit, so I wonder if that's... Uh... Well, Jordan B. Peterson does believe in marriage, so yeah, as the you know, being the force that kind of or the the, yeah. the structure that elicits the most productive result from order and chaos. Yeah, there you go. Um, it's interesting because in the third game, uh, the Gwendolyn character and the Priscilla character, who can turn invisible, get kind of combined into one character of invisible telescoping corridors I don't know I haven't gotten up to that bus yet sounds fucking difficult (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it will be you can't catch me or see me but you have to win (laughs) yeah fun dickhead you bought this game you knew what you were in for yeah (laughs) Uh, is my Jordan Peterson voice okay I feel like it's a little as a podcaster you have to have a Jordan B. Peterson voice it's it's a little uh... it's a bit cartoony isn't it yeah it's weirdly abstract but I like it because a lot of people are just doing the like, oh, it's me, Jordan Peterson, it's the Kermit voice. Like, everybody's yeah. doing that. So having this bizarre kind of, like, <laughs> fucking plasmo character or something in the Dasha middle of it all. Moran, Melbourne's worst impressions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, you should just hundred percent do a show, a live show. <laughs> you can give your own voiceover at the start. Just being like, It's me, Barack Obama. <laughs> Hussein Obama. Barack yeah. Hussein. You have to italicize the Hussein. Yeah. Very important. We keep finding a way to slip back into politics. Because talk. we're obsessed, Kieran, because we have an unhealthy yeah. obsession yeah. based on years of powerlessness. Mm. Um, it's, it- the, it's the obsession with politics is like, you know, bulimics with food, right? It's like Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. So, so we um, should we should wean ourselves off this unhealthy line of thinking back into the beautiful world of of, uh, of games. Well, I mean that's that's about all that's I about wanted to say there, except just to say that that's obviously like a pretty fucking rough notes version of something that will be much more concretized. So maybe in like eight months or something. But the wonderful thing, of course, about having a piece of postmodern art mm. is that you can almost endlessly reboot the discussion around it. Yeah, yeah, in a way that doesn't feel disingenuous or yeah. like you've been missing pieces or whatever. Yeah, that was also something that um, Charlie Kaufman said about Synecdoche, New York, is he wanted to make a film that people could watch at different points in their life and come away with different uh, interpretations. And I think that that's part of that film's genius. If you like that film, as I do, a lot of people don't, which is also fine. But part of its genius is that it doesn't, make firm commitments on the opinions of the characters so you've got a character who is too obsessed with death and a character who's too flippant with death and explores that kind of Hmm. in this endlessly cascading kind of way and that but it doesn't tell you that one is better or worse or whatever it just lets it kind of spin out and sit which is interesting so maybe Charlie Kaufman's doing another one that's approaching this. Oh, that sounds rather fun. Style of thing. He's. I think he's adapting some dog shit YA book series as a TV show as his next project because people don't have Gotta any get taste. Paid. Yeah. People yeah. don't have taste and they refuse to give him big ticket movies after Synecdoche and Anomalisa both kind of underperformed. Oh, well. That's a shame. The um, cycle will, uh, will go on. Yeah. Anyway, you have something to talk yeah, about. So. But I have to piss. Oh, yes, so badly. <laughs> ah, a nice, refreshing piss. So what did you uh, want to talk about on this special No Holds Barred episode, Darcy? Uh, I wanted to talk about comedy. Because yes. although I come across as being a, a very serious, uh, deep thinker, yes, um, my main source of, of joy and interest in the world is actually comedy. Mm. And that's something of an ironic curse, because I am, of course, not funny. Uh. However, you know, crosses to bear, crosses to bear, mustn't yeah. rumble, Kieran. No, One of the things true. I wanted to discuss was not just comedy per se, uh. because, uh, well, you know, it's a half-hour spot, isn't it? Mm. What I wanted to talk about was this interesting phenomenon that's taking place over the past let's say 25 or more, probably 35 years, Mm. of comedians slowly moving from being essentially um, just kind of sexist and racist local entertainers Mm. through to emergent spokespeople for um, the kind of 
underprivileged and confused in society. Yeah, the kind of cultural the, conscience. The, yeah, the yeah. Um, the main uh, critique, criti- the, the the main enemies of if, of the uh, of the ruling class, really. Mm. And this started, to my mind, which I'm probably wrong. I'm going to say, in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. In the UK, you had the alternative comedy circuit start up yeah. uh, with you know Alexi Sale, Rick and Adrian, and Nigel Planer, and all these characters yes. um, who took the traditional role of the comedian as being you know one who entertained through laughter. Yep. But instead of attacking gay people, black people, women. Instead yeah. of attacking people who did not have the social old, power, the old traditions, they started to attack the pillars of society. You know, yeah, the aristocracy, uh, the patriarchy generally. You know, religion. Mm. I guess in a way, Monty Python kind of got this ball moving earlier, but they were yeah. not particularly political until they did Life of Brian. Yeah. Which wasn't in itself directly political. Yeah. Or they would they would have politics in there, but it was part of their general kind yeah, of it wasn't, generalized it wasn't the point, right? It, was it would just be a politician on one hand stuff. and a dumb housewife on the other. Like it was. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like they were the Pythons were very sexist. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, but you know, know it's not, not not exactly out of not, step. With not the so time. much by the standards of the day. Yeah. But they were still fit pretty. And I don't think they mm. are now the ones that are still alive. But yeah, but they, but yeah, certainly alternative comedy in the eighties saw a shift in um, entertainers laughing at people like you know Roy Chubby Brown and and uh, and Benny Hill and Bernard Manning who just yeah. you know were rude about people who were unfortunate. Yeah, through to being rude about people who were fortunate. Yeah, uh, and that was a really important, a very simple but a really important shift in British comedy, mm. and it has filtered through to Australia. It took off more stop and starty in the US, although since yeah. the financial crisis, or since George Bush actually, yeah. America's been running with it very well. They I think Obama s- kind of smothered it a little bit. Yeah, possibly. They started very early on with, like, uh, Richard Pryor and George Carlin as sort of pinpointed as two of the big kind of cultural conscience That's true, actually. That's a fair point. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they would immediately establish a tradition or that they were part of a tradition, but you can draw lines from that through, like, what black comedy sort of became and what... uh, you know, <laughs> the privileged white version of that. No, that's true. I mean, like, they, they were definitely doing it. I guess the question is whether or not a, a movement then came out of it, which I it did eventually. I think it's a bit more subtle than yeah. that, a gradual shift, but they, it didn't have the sort of cohesion maybe that it did in the UK. I don't know. I'm well, I guess a- in the UK, you got a smaller population, you got mm. physically less land, and, yeah. um, and the kind of Oxbridge comedy club hmm. that means you've got a smaller and more incestuous yeah. comedy community so yeah. a movement is going to take hold in a way hmm. america's more pluralistic it's much harder to get a yeah. single thing going and they're still fucking trying to figure out what their socially responsible comedy looks like with uh 
Yeah, there've been some laptop phenomenon that people are really fighting against and then trying to figure out how mean you're allowed to be as a progressive comedian and then of course some of them are quite good boys but then they rape women so oh fuck no that's not good. Are we still allowed to listen to that joke that he told before we knew he was a rapist? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a last scene in Parks and Rec where Amy Poehler's got Aziz Ansari on one side of her and Louis C.K. on the other. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, wow, there was nothing uncomfortable about this scene when they filmed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, man. Uh, I was watching uh, somebody, somebody Feed Phil, which is like a cooking travel kind of thing, and the guy who uh, is like the, the Larry David of Everybody Loves Raymond, which isn't a selling point, but he's a very genial, like, enthusiastic guy, and he's, like, so charming and stuff, and it, it would have come out just before the Louis C.K. revelation hit, and he's like, and after breakfast, I have another breakfast, or what Louis C.K. would call a bang-bang. And you're just like, it's such a nice little kind of friendly moment in this thing. But the second he said Louis C.K.'s name, my fucking heart seized up a little bit. I was yeah. like, oh, fuck, am I allowed to still find that funny? <laughs> of course Which, you are. of course I am, but... I, uh, yeah, Doug Stanhope had a bit... This is a- Get him about mm. to get onto Frankie Boyle and Stuart Lee because they're two of my current favourites. But sure. Doug Stanhope, who's one of my American favourites, mm. um, was on Frankie Boyle's New World Order a couple of weeks ago mm. and did make reference to the fact that every comedian whose show he has appeared on <laughs> has either had their show cancelled yeah. or been cast out of society recently. So, <laughs> yeah. Except Charlie Brooker. I think yeah, Charlie Brooks so survived, far survived. He, he pivoted early. Yeah. That's how he got away from it. From yeah, man. Netflix fucking made a dog's breakfast of Black Mirror, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. To su- oh, well, mm, I'm more forgiving than some, but let's not get let's too not get far afield. Let's not get sidetracked. Doug Stanhope is a fucking miracle because by all rights, uh, he should have been taken down by the, the sort of like American pearl clutching... Uh, majority or whatever he was but never like, taken keeps, up by them right no but people keep trying every now and again you see somebody try to get their hooks in and it just rolls off him because well, he doesn't he fundamentally care. doesn't care yeah and he's fundamentally an all right person he he's is. like he's basically if he pretends to be much more of an asshole than yeah. he is because i think that makes it much easier for him to for, do his job yeah but also survive it's rough. in an awful world <laughs> it's rough where it's sorry it's tough to poke holes in the morals of somebody when one of their biggest transgressive jokes was that they wanted to have a photo of themselves sucking a black dude's oh, dick yeah, in so their wallet oh yeah so he could still use the word faggot yeah because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was it's too like, good a curse to give up yeah and it's like an insanely fucking risky joke but yeah. it's centered around this idea that yeah he truly doesn't give a fuck and it's more important to be good than to talk good also Maybe. true I don't also, mind. he's a libertarian, yeah. but well, he's yeah. a kind of libertarian thinker. It's like, yeah, I think most libertarians will like approached it like Doug Stanhope did. I would have a lot yeah. more time for it. It's not that I still yeah. think it was wrong, but I I'd don't have a lot yeah. more time for it. It's wrong, but he's such a fucking weird carnivalesque person with his project to like rehabilitate Bisbee where he lives and like kind of make it into this fucking famous tiny town or whatever. Yeah. Not that he would say any of that overtly, but yeah, he's got just this fucking off the wall way of life where you're like, yeah, sure, you can be a libertarian. Like, yeah, well, I suppose he has least. to be because he just can't socialize, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so he was on Frankie Boyle. Yeah, and Frankie Boyle is man I want to talk about because Frankie Boyle, more than anyone else in Australia or Britain or even America at the moment, mm. who I can think about, has really taken up this um, role of the voice of conscience against power. Yeah. Um, specifically on behalf of the most marginalised parts of society. Mm. And it's gotten to a point with Frankie Boyle's work where, although it is very entertaining, the primary purpose of what he does is no longer entertainment. It's now become, or he has become, Mm. um, uh, a, a a, a curator of discontent, basically. Yeah. And what intrigues me is you've got this uh, thing going on with uh, the alt-right where they have their own clowns like, you know, Milo and uh, the current president of the Mm. world Mm. and I'm sure (laughs) others that I'm probably never going to get around to giving a fuck about who... Of fulfilling a similar role, but for people who are wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they're still um, entertainers yeah. who have opportunistically become curators of discontent. Yeah. And what is a unifier is that... And you can call them comedians. You can call Milo Yiannopoulos is definitely a comedian, to my mind. I don't think that he's, yeah, he's very kind of, funny, but no, he's a he's comedian... Kind of working in that- in, in tradition, in, in, in practice, in, yeah, and certainly you know, an attention-seeking, narcissistic, yeah. philandering, coke-addicted liar. Like he fulfills yeah. a lot of the criteria for being a comedian. Yeah, um, he's exactly uh, Bo Burnham, right? Slight digression. Yeah, young American musical comedian, half the most irritating person in the world to watch, and half. Uh, very kind of deeply incisive about unhappiness and and art and stuff and he has that thing of uh art is dead where he's talking about what a comedian is and it's uh yeah an attention attractor that tries to make other people's birthday parties about him that's exactly what milo yiannopoulos is ah he's absolutely attention starved yeah spotlight child and physically as myopic as he is um mm. uh allegorically mm. But, uh, yeah, I think <clears throat> what's interesting is, for me, the uh, transition point from either kind of like comic strip presents and a kick up the 80s mm. alternative comedy of the Thatcher era, yeah, which was still primarily a source of entertainment, yeah, albeit cathartic entertainment, through to this establishment now of comedians as, yeah, curators of discontent. Yeah. Mm. Uh, in a world in which journalists appear to have largely kind of thrown off their uh, responsibilities to the public. Yeah. Not that journalists have universally done this yeah. or that they've, you know, somehow stopped reporting. Mm. You know, they still fundamentally do what they did 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, but there's some sort of blockage in the journalistic machine that's stopping it as an institution from serving those interests, right? There's Yeah, there appears to be. A weird breath of fresh air when you find an investigative journalist that's willing to do the hard work and dig in 
to to something that requires reporting and then have their headline pasted on Twitter for a day and then forgotten about straight away. Yeah, well, because like investigative journalists are long reads, right? You've yeah, got a, it's a report. Yeah, and people don't uh, people don't get down with that sort of thing anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I'm not sure where this sort of shamanistic comedian character. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily all that helpful. I don't know. Here's something that I was thinking uh, about as you were speaking. Um, in stand-up comedy, or, like, the co- the person as a comedian, this is kind of a movement that's taken place. But I wonder if you could draw some connection between, like, when that stopped happening in, say, literature and when it started happening in stand-up comedy. Because, like, Joseph Heller or whatever, Catch-22 is obviously sort of a funny, absurd thing, but it's, like, a deeply, deeply devastated anti-war book. I'm going to say that what we might have on our hands is a gentrification process within the actual media world, Mm. right? So, in the 1920s in Australia, poetry was the main literary consumption of the working classes that became gentrified and no one reads it anymore. Yeah. Um, Interesting take on the jazz music in the thirties and forties. Yeah. Was the main like musical consumption of the working classes in the fifties and sixties that became gentrified and now nobody listens to it anymore. Yeah. And newspapers in the 1990s became gentrified and nobody reads them anymore. Sure. Right. What exactly do you mean by gentrifying? I mean, because I have a they idea. Become, as it were, elevated mm. into the academy. Right. It becomes a middle class yeah. and upper class pursuit. Yeah. Um, like you know, they they get operated essentially. So yep. You look yep. through newspapers. You look through the media landscape today, mm. and whether it's the right or the left wing presses, mm. there are no blue collar voices apart from occasional oh, opinion yeah. pieces. Sure. Um, and <clears throat> comedy mm. is the new media format in which working class voices are allowed to articulate themselves and allowed yeah. to broadcast for popular consumption. Because they don't really That's... exist in music anymore either. Sure they do. Not on this yeah, mass they... scale. Yeah, they do. Well, uh, they're not getting heard necessarily, but they're yeah, definitely so I'm just out there. Largely and what I'm talking about is whether or not people are picking up on it. Yeah, okay. Like, there's still, Interesting. you know, working class people writing poetry and... yeah. You know, but it's also like hot jazz musicians doing. No, no, this is different though, because it's like the Sleaford Mods are an exceptionally popular band, and it's two fucking dirt poor working class British guys making very unpretentious raps about how shitty it is to be working class and how rich people need to fuck off. Like with music, I don't think it's disappeared like poetry because it's still because it's cheap to make and it's cheap to distribute and stuff, and people's tastes are much more diversified. In music, they're not in like the top forty charts, but they're also by no means like no. obscure like poets. Okay, that's a fair point. I guess what I was suggesting, yeah, was that working class voices have have disappeared from mass popular consumed. Music. Sure. All right. So if it's right. like the the shit that you can turn because on the TV and have given to you, yeah, yeah. or on the radio, or on the radio, uh, or what's promoted by iTunes, yeah, right, because that's all still record label stuff. Yeah. And that all takes place in a, a much more class 
contained environment than it used to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, mm. I could be wrong about this, but of the large-scale media industries mm. that are currently running in the, again, like this is all Anglophone stuff, yeah. uh, but in the Anglophone world, comedy appears to be the area which is which has the bluest collar, which is yeah. less, the least gentrified um, and therefore the most kind of widespread relevant uh, kind of media good. Yeah, broadly. It might be like putting a little too much value on something that I know you love very dearly, but I'd I say, could be. I say I could you're be. broadly correct. It's still very popular. I'm, I'm still... just I'm just trying to explain where this... Mm. And this is maybe also, less this, of an Australian thing well, this and more is, of an Anglo-American thing That just well. occurred to me is maybe I'm talking from the position of Australia where our, our comedy, comedy is, is not good. Yeah, really. <laughs> Whereas you're kind of a bit more engaged with the British comedy scene where, yeah, they're on TV all the time. And, and like the ABC's got bits, I suppose, but generally speaking, it's, pieces of it, it's not what it is in America or Britain or, or yeah. New Zealand. In fact, New Zealand's got a much healthier comedy scene yeah. than us, and so does Canada. Don't the know fact wh- that a fucking Walid Ali was our celebrated kind of left voice, progressive voice, or whatever, says something about the state of our comedy scene. Because yeah, because he's a self-confessed like yeah. Burkean conservative. Yeah, and all like and not a comedian and such also mild, not a comedian but he's literally mild takes and he's stuff. literally of the opinion that he himself is a conservative yeah this is what yeah. words from his mouth you know sure <laughs> and i think that i think that people are trying to change it i think charlie pickering is trying to do uh, a harder show than he's actually pulling off and i think tom gleason is trying to do something i don't think yeah. that they're being very successful no and i don't think they were ever going I'm surprised. I don't think that they're the right as people as they have. I don't think that they're the right people for the job, but it's yeah, probably good for anything. that um it's probably good that they're giving it a crack. I think Sean Sean McAuliffe is one bad day from completely radicalizing and turning his entire <laughs> creative output into Sean McAuliffe has long been my uh kind of hope for Australian comedy. Yeah. I guess the the Chaser Boys are probably the closest thing. Yeah, but, but even that is not um it's you know, not they they've got the crispest, whitest collars. The going. the Chaser has been gentrified 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're only like uh, Chaz has that show where he analyzes US politics with that other guy and stuff and Craig has the war on waste and stuff, but it's all very like you know, our parents watch The Chaser now. Yeah, this is a fair point. Not as subversive as once it was. Well, maybe. they were kicked off the air that time. Mm. I think that changed things a little bit. Yeah. But even at the t- even at the height of their popularity, when uh, my peers were, like, talking about how much they loved The Chaser, I was like, yeah, this is good, but also, like, I've just been watching fucking Ali G and Borat <laughs> on the weekend with my mate from across the road and like that seems way more hardcore and subversive than this chaser stuff mm. no i suppose it's that the, the, they were they were kind of augmented by the very vacuum in which they were operating yeah. weren't they and i i like them a lot they're very good boys our chaser boys but it just yeah. says something that they're well in, in in a healthier comedy landscape they of course 
would have been pushed to produce much better material. Yeah. Um, you know, there is something to be said for the competition and collaboration that comes from a, a yeah. broader community. So that would be an interesting thing to look at later is why comedy sucks in Australia. Yeah. But it still doesn't... I, yeah, I, I suppose what I'm trying to, to get at is I'm trying to figure out how in the US and the UK and mm. Canada and New Zealand, if if not mm. here, um, countries that should have... Uh, basically some of the best, if not the best, journalism in the world mm. have got to rely on people who are not trained journalists mm. to analyse current affairs in a way that makes sense to the public. Yeah. I think- and who are prepared mm. to call out um, the machinations and the lies of the political and the corporate leadership of our countries in a way that resonates with the public. And yeah. possibly, I think, it's because of this gentrification of the other media outlets. Yeah, possibly. I think partly also what's going on is if you run a journalistic enterprise, you're subject to whatever financial system is allowing your fucking magazine to go to print or whatever. Like, there's just an endless road of potential compromises there. That you see journalistic, true. and if but I, if you're this- a comedian, like your success basically depends directly on how populist you are. And as long as there's an infrastructure in place to put you on a screen or put you on the radio, if you're saying what people are fucking vibing with, then well, it seems like a natural place. This the- is uh, this is in fact timely reference because this is why mm. Frankie Boyle no longer writes um, columns for the Guardian, right? Because he found that. Uh, yeah, but by, by, by the time they'd edited it into a form that they were happy with, yeah. there was really no point uh, in them having asked him to write it in the first place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, as he said, like, I support one of the two major political parties in the country. Like, mm. I'm not, you know, a fringe political figure. <laughs> Yeah. We have two big parties and I support one of them. Yeah. And that's still too much, mm. <laughs> for, too the, much for, them. for the landscape to, to safely absorb. Yeah. So yeah. Speaking into a cup of water. <laughs> that's professionalism. That's technique. <laughs> um, yeah. And when you're a journalist, like if you're an individual who wants to be a journalist, you have to compete against... Uh, clickbait and propaganda and fucking agenda writing and commercially driven advertising by another name and all of this shit. If you're a comedian, you might have to compete with like lazy jokes that appeal to people's baser instincts, but you don't have to appeal with, you don't have to compete with the comedian who's telling these jokes because his boss tells him he has to tell these jokes That's true. or whatever. But I, I think partly comedians have also been forced into this position mm. by um, people who set themselves up as the enemies of political correctness. Yeah. Which is ironic because alternative comedy is, if there is such a thing as political correctness, it's not most alternative comedies, which are, mm. tend to be extremely crass and boundary pushing and, yeah. you know, confrontational. None of which fall into this whatever the whatever the fuck people think political correctness is. Yeah. But um, you take somebody like Stuart Lee, 
uh-huh. who's my other f- favourite at the moment, uh, yeah. or Frankie Boyle, they're kind of almost forced into assuming the positions that they have, which are progressive positions, because so much of the conservative commentariat is not content with the material that they're producing and attack them for it, right? Yeah. Um, Stuart Lee has a great bit on um, Islam and does a series of Islam jokes which are very subversive because they're actually... Like, if you were a a practicing Muslim, Mm. you would find these funny jokes about the ins and outs of Islamic culture around the world, right? Right. And so he does that. He goes, oh, we didn't mean like that, Stu. We meant, you know, make fun of their hats. (laughs) Or, you know, those little papadom chips they eat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, this conservative backlash against this mm. invisible boogeyman of political correctness has kind of ironically fueled the rise of the progressive comedian yeah. as a voice in the media because these guys then have to respond to allegations that they're, you know, not being sufficiently mean to Muslims yeah. or what have you. Because the free speech people are always like up their own ass about controlling what yeah, other people say. Totally dialogue say. Nazis, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that makes a lot of sense because there is a certain certain air of exhaustion to all of these people about being backed into this corner. Yeah, and I guess Frankie Boyle is a good uh, example there because, yeah, he started out doing his just sort of directionless, ribald kind of filthy for the sake of filthy, quite funny for that, but has just gradually been cajoled into this position of being the voice of the left in UK well, popular comedy. He has. And I, I think maybe fatherhood has an impact on this as well, or parenthood. That's definitely possible. Because suddenly you have a stake in the society mm. that you could never have had without a child to care for. Sure. Which is like, oh, no. <laughs> I have to try and make this fucking planet function now because yeah. I've created an innocent child <laughs> that has to try and sp- yeah and and navigate birth to grave so that i think probably nothing gives you a stake in a society like having a child i suspect yeah i say i suspect because it's going to be hopefully a very long time <laughs> if indeed i ever do have one yeah it's um, a hard hard gamble that one yeah, I can't. I, do you know, this is a funny thing. I thought there'd be more in this topic, but there's not yeah. actually a huge amount to it, really. No, I mean, it's just interesting, right? It's that there's interesting a- where the voice of the culture goes. Because yeah. it is to different people. There was a time in history where radio DJs on fucking rock music shows were like. I was about to say, the like, pop, pop rock used to be the kind of trumpet sounder. Yeah. I guess and- comedy has just always seemed in a way unlikely yeah because it's always been viewed as the most flippant and the most banal of the entertainment sectors yeah which i i've always disagreed with because i've always taken comedy very seriously because it is a what a fucking i just heard those words come out of my mouth and i feel ill Mm. and i want to kill myself now fucking such a cunt of a thing to say the sort of (laughs) the sort of friend to take comedy really seriously actually yeah oh but I do. I think comedy is quite a serious topic yeah. because it's my own main coping device. Here's what I wonder. I'm I'm not particularly plugged into the uh, UK scene at the moment. There was a point in time where I was, but not at the moment. But in the US, 
it's a good time to be. It, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's melting. <laughs> I might I might check it out again. Um in the US though, I wonder if stand up and sort of comedian comedy is maybe on a downer. Well, possibly because it's taken a lot of hits lately because people are starting to talk about like the comedians should be nice phenomenon is stronger there than it is anywhere else. Of course it is. Right. America's because mm. because the people who do the most unspeakable things are the most obsessed with presentation. Right. Yeah. And America is the most unspeakable of all Western societies. Yeah. Um not to say that like sometimes you watch old comedy and you're like, fuck, that's a bit It was interesting heavy, watching Faulty but- Towers um mm. with Robin last night which is not last night, whenever you hear this. A night. Robert and I are watching yeah. Faulty Towers. And the racism yeah. in Faulty Towers yeah. is fucking extraordinary. <laughs> from Like, it really is. From, fr- from yeah. the, you know, xenophobic depictions of the Spanish waiter yeah. to the xenophobic depictions of the Irish tradesman, yeah. the German guests probably get off the easiest, mm. the American guy though is a really horrible caricature of an american yeah i weirdly the australian woman is used as a kind of yeah because ambiguously john, beautiful john cleese has a well, fetishized idea about australian women yeah um but the language mm. is quite immaculate you know there's no cursing there's no cussing yeah. the major uses the uh the n-word as you have taught me to say kieran uh, in so, his what, what are you talking about? As I've taught you to say, oh, you, you missed the last say. twenty years of dialogue. Ah, uh, goddamn! Um, you know, you politically correct weasel. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> but right, there's a whole conversation about the cricket, where you know, Major's taken a, a woman to see the cricket, and she's mm. referring to all the players as n words, and he says, mm. no, 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 that's the West Indians. These people are wogs. Yeah, right. So on and so on and so on. Yeah. You couldn't use any of that kind of language in popular discourse now mm. in comedy, but the swearing is, you know, yeah. through the roof. It's, it's just interesting about tastes and polit- political correctness, which is really just mores and manners. Yeah. Um, it's about inter- different. It's kind of interesting settings. that you say that as well. We've been rewatching uh, Arrested Development because season five is out or coming out or whatever. And. To be honest, it's only got six months in it before one of them does something so monstrous that the whole thing loses its luster, so we have to rewatch it all now. Yeah. And um, <laughs> this is in the wake of fucking the terrible interview that they had where everybody talked over Jessica Walter, who is the most talented person in that show. Yeah, and, and most beloved, I think. Yeah. Probably a fair thing to say. Um, and that is... It's been a lot less time, but that is full of some pretty sketchy yeah. transphobic stuff. And Absolutely like, it is. Tobias's and closeted homosexuality is really riding the line of, like, because where Because they never actually out him as a homosexual, it's... Until season four, where in one of oh, the early right. episodes... Or I don't know if they out him, but they say, like, there's this running joke that everybody in the family thinks that you're gay, and, he, and that's part of his journey or whatever. Yeah. That's where we're up to now. But um, I, mean, I guess you've, you've always got a sort of sneaky backdoor with that sort of thing where you can say, it's just a depiction of the consequences of social intolerance on a human being. It's, yeah. We don't think that gay people are like that yeah. kind of thing. 
Well, I don't think that Mitchell Hurwitz is a bad person. No, I don't think the don't cast think it's homophobic. Particularly- These are just things you pick up from your own social context. Yeah. And you often don't challenge them until someone points out to you that, like, yeah. what you, that well, Little Britain from 10 years ago, mm. you know. Yeah. Watch an wow. episode of what everybody thought was fine just 10 years ago. Yeah. One of the UK's most popular cultural exports in 2005. Yeah. Completely inappropriate and unacceptable yeah. yeah and i like that the culture caught on before they did in that like when they tried to catch lightning in a bottle a second time with the airport show and isn't one of them legitimate oh come in- fly with me matt lucas is gay and david Williams is subject to endless speculation no no, no i'm not talking about that oh. i'm talking about the blackface oh yeah yeah that's right <laughs> Well, see, blackface is a really interesting one, though, isn't it? Because it's partly down to luck, whether or not people actually get angry with you for doing blackface. Yeah. But Julian Barrett can do the character of Rudy, the psychedelic monk, yeah, that's for true. the rest of his life, and no one is ever going to get cross with him for yeah. it. <laughs> and Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder as well. Yeah. So it's not it's not just a British No, it's not just a British thing. thing. It's, 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 you just have to pull off a hell of a character, I guess. Yeah, and I think so. And not have it be cheap. I think so. And, and in the case of, I guess, where, where blackface is still successful. No, it's not just luck, because it has to mm. be clear yeah. that you're not just mocking an ethnic group. Well, right? yeah. Robert Downey Jr.'s blackface is a joke about people who do blackface. Do blackface. And Rudy, Rudy the Prudy is a very specific character. Yeah. It's not like a, ha <laughs> black people. Yeah. Look at them playing guitar. It's yeah. a- there's a very specific. I mean, it's a character that you build starting with the template of Jimi Hendrix. So yeah. <laughs> where do no, you? No, that's true. Where do you? That um, is true. But it moved. It was sufficiently. I mean, that's, that's why it was sufficiently beyond succeed. Jimi Hendrix as well, though. By the time it came out. Yeah, I'm just trying to suggest why it might necessitate being a black character. Because oh, it's like that's true. If it's building off Jimi and how central he was to that specific type Actually, of that's mystical, a fair, that's spiritual a fair point. guitar player. If there is, yeah. But they're also never being like, oh, Rudy's funny because he's a spiritualist guitar player. And also, doesn't he just love to eat watermelon? <laughs> like, they're not doing any of that really gross shit. So. No, I guess, yeah, there there aren't many... Actually, I can't think of any actual, as it were, black stereotypes yeah. that Rudy particularly embodies. Yeah. Certainly, the idea of being a psychedelic monk yeah. doesn't readily associate itself with any classic black stereotypes. Sexually prodigious? He's not, though, Rudy. He's Rudy the Prudy, remember? Oh, yeah. Spiders. Spiders. Spiders more problematic as a racial caricature, (laughs) but because it's not actually any kind of skin-altering makeup involved. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. You know what I've just realised is that this started out about as an interesting little discussion about the sort of movement of the zeitgeist and shit, and what you've accidentally done is lead us into a minefield of just accounting wit for which problematic jokes we think are fine and which aren't yeah that's true i that which is which is possibly a logical consequence of it right because this is mm. part of the cultural dialogue that comedians are shaping yeah uh, or, or or that is shaping comedians mm. it's difficult to know which side has the greater input the performer or the audience on this one yeah Interesting. But, it, yeah, again, that's the curation of discontent being mm. facilitated by the medium of comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What happens? Com- comedy gets gentrified and then what? What's left? Um, I guess... 
Oof, it's difficult to predict. Yeah, because I'll definitely be wrong. Like I've, I've, I've I think, I think podcasts is the safest bet. You reckon? Yeah, that's their that's audience a fair point. is still growing. One of the most successful podcasts is a fucking political, and social conscious podcast. They yes. don't require, um, you know, production facilities yeah, necessarily beyond democratic beyond this. Yeah, podcasts could be the next thing, and within a podcast, you can have virtually certainly any audio medium and eventually yeah. visual medium won't be any mm. well won't be much more of a challenge i wouldn't think yeah well i mean the other option is youtube channels in which case we're doomed i don't think those are i don't i i think youtube i think that like the those mm. those first wave social media mm. superpowers have probably hit or whatever replaces youtube yeah. like cheap uh, user uploaded video stuff because it seems like podcasts are really popular with the left and YouTube is really popular with the right. Yeah, right? YouTube's got a terrifying yeah. comments section. <laughs> it's amazing. It's <laughs> yeah, and genuinely amazing. Just and it's just a pretty bad roster of pointless pseudo intellectuals putting up. Are you talking about of- Sargon of a cat? Yeah, yeah, he was in my mind. I was also thinking of just there's a lot of fucking Jordan B. Peterson destroys postmodernism yeah. out there. Which- there was a there was a really nice um, bit on. I, I think it was maybe friendly Geordies. Yeah, did a kind of spoof of Jordan B. Peterson destroys Australian journalist, where mm. Jordan plays Koshy. Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro mm. having like a conference interview. It's very funny. It's beautifully done. Mm. But one of the comments threads was from a woman saying, oh, you know, like, we just need to find a more articulate defender of um, libertarianism, you know, <laughs> and it'll it'll be uh, the, right underneath her. This guy's going, oh, like FFS. The excuse is always such and such an idiot isn't a sufficiently articulate <laughs> defender of libertarianism. It's like, the next big thing is always just whoever the left haven't got around to criticising yet. Yeah. <laughs> None yeah. of them hold up no, to scrutiny. It's quite pleasing seeing the roster thin as the kind of big old sacred cows fall a little bit. Yeah. And you end up with weirdos instead. Threadbare, tiny-brained weirdos. <laughs> cool. So just be the lobster. Um, is that it? I think that's. I it. I mean, that could be it. And then I get to use that same length. Uh, yeah. Bit from the start, which will be, I think, the more the more amusing of the three options. Yes. Yes. Good. Well, thanks for listening to our special episode. Don't know if this is the format that these special episodes will continue to. They're gonna. I think. Uh, yeah, they'll, they'll they'll each be special in their own special way. Yeah, as you, sweet listener, are special in your own special way, and Kieran is special in his own special way, and I am uh, uh, somewhat. You're special in your own special way. Did you need me to say it? Is that- no, it just doesn't feel true. It's definitely true. Don't worry about that. All right, listener, I love you. Goodbye. Unless you're a farmer. Stop.